Land, Water, Wildlife, a podcast produced by the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, connecting you to nature. Thanks for listening to the 11th episode of our podcast. Today, we're talking about our truly remarkable 2020 sea turtle nesting season, which broke several records. I'm Barbara Lindstrom, Communications Director for the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation, better known as SCCF, which was founded in 1967. As a grassroots organization, we're producing this podcast on our phones using a free digital platform so that we can cost-effectively bring you conversations about the work we do to preserve and protect the coastal habitats and aquatic resources on Sanibel and Captiva and in the surrounding watershed. Today, we're joined by scientists from our sea turtle program, including Coastal Wildlife Director Kelly Sloan, who has served as coordinator for seven seasons. Kelly first led a sea turtle program in South Carolina, where she helped manage all aspects of the Department of Natural Resources Marine Turtle Conservation Program. She has a master's degree in environmental science and policy from the College of Charleston. Her thesis focused on using barnacle growth as an indicator of the onset and duration of debilitated turtle syndrome in loggerhead sea turtles. Since joining SCCF, Kelly has launched a research program to go along with our monitoring program. Current studies are related to red tide, sex ratios, and tracking. Welcome back to the podcast, Kelly. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. We're also joined by her two full-time staff members, research associate Andrew Glinsky and biologist Jack Brizoza. Andrew has a master's degree in marine conservation and policy from Stony Brook University. Over the last six years, he has been a research assistant for sea turtle programs in Central America, West Africa, the Caribbean, and here on our islands. While abroad, he was fortunate to work with multiple species of sea turtles. Good to have you on the podcast, Andrew. Thanks. Uh, happy to be here. Great. And Jack has a BS in biological science from the University of Pittsburgh. After graduating, he traveled south to pursue interests in the field of marine conservation. In 2016, as a re research assistant in Costa Rica, Jack spent the nesting season working with Olive Ridley's for an NGO devoted to the conservation and research of sea turtles. In 2017, as technician with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, he worked with loggerheads on Osaba Island. Jack joined SCCF as a technician in the sea turtle program for the 2018 and 2019 nesting seasons. He started his current position as biologist in February, 2020. Thanks for joining us, Jack. Sure, thanks for having me. Should be fun. Great. So uh, it's great to have all of you here to talk with us about our sea turtle program, which is one of the longest running in the country with its origins going back 60 years. And as a community, we're so grateful for all the hours you and more than 100 volunteers put in each season to protect and care for these amazing creatures that nest on our beaches from April through October each year. So I can't imagine what a shift it must be for you when the season ends after more than six months of just such intense work on the beaches. Um, How does it feel to be done with this season, Kelly? 
Yeah, well, in in my opinion, sea turtle season is the best time of the year. (laughs) And there's always a lot of anticipation before the season even starts because you never really know what's in store. And it's always exciting to see how it all plays out. Um, So this time of year is sort of bittersweet because we all really enjoy spending our days and nights on the beach with the turtles. But it's also pretty satisfying to take a minute to reflect on the success of the season. And the season just ended uh, last on October 31st, officially, correct? Right. That's the official end. And we inventoried our nest last Thursday. So just a couple days before that. So that was the last nest of the season. Okay. And Andrew, what would you say stands out um, to you most about the 2020 season? I think uh, this season, um, the thing that stands out the most is, I mean, we got to see a leatherback, which was pretty awesome. But I think towards the beginning of the season, uh, the just the logistical hurdles we had to go through to kind of uh, deal with the pandemic and being uh, understaffed and, and not having volunteers. So there was a lot of uh, moving parts and it was a big struggle to get the season going. But once we did, and uh, with a lot of help from SECF staff members and then volunteers coming back, uh, it, was, uh, it turned out really great. Yeah, you guys really pulled it off. Uh, and Jack, now that you've had a chance to reflect on this season, um, how would you describe it compared to previous years? Um, yeah, so I think Andrew raised a good point about the logistical hurdles. And I think, I mean, if you're looking at this year compared to years past, um, it's certainly different, but it's it's similar in that there was some kind of um, like outside circumstance that we had to deal with. Um, so every year kind of since I've been here, there's always been something that's kind of uh, in some ways thrown a wrench in the kind of the season, just something you have to work through. But I think that's part of what um, draws me and probably Kelly and Andrew to a point to this kind of work is that it's there's always something different going on, whether it's red tide or, um, you know, uh, handling the, the pandemic. It's just uh, another way to kind of approach the season. Yeah, I mean, you guys must have bonded pretty well over the last uh, the last three seasons. Uh, each one's been exceptional in its own way. As you mentioned, the red tide in 2018, um, record-breaking number of hatchlings in 2019, and then all the ways that this season was so remarkable. Um, Kelly, how did having a team that you knew so well help with this season? Yeah, so we've definitely been through some ups and downs together over the years, like you mentioned, and these guys are so dependable and dedicated and just have a really great sense of humor no matter what the circumstances are. So having a supportive team that works really efficiently together makes all the difference in these challenging seasons, I think. So you had the the red tide and and Jack, you mentioned um, you know, outside circumstances, what, what would that have been uh, last season? Not in 2019. Um, so, yeah, so maybe outside circumstances wasn't as big a factor last year, but I think we had, um, we had a lot of time and effort um, wrapped up in research projects. We kind of had a lot going on last year. Um, and that was kind of, you know, something that we, um, you know, uh, brought on ourselves almost in a way, but it was, um, it just added to the normal kind of um, monitoring efforts and, and stuff. It was just a something else that kept us extremely busy that was kind of 
um, you know, different than maybe in years past. Ah, oh, I see. Yeah, you guys are very devoted. It's it's really amazing um, what you do around the clock. So, um, so you've all three worked with sea turtles in Costa Rica, which I find interesting. And Andrew, you've worked with sea turtles in West Africa and the Caribbean as well. So um, what, what made you seek out a full-time position here at SCCF? Uh, well, I started at uh, SCCF in 2016 as an intern. And I kind of like worked my way up as a seasonal technician and, and then to full-time staff. But uh, I'm, I just feel really fortunate and uh, lucky to have a job here because the sea turtle uh, world is, is very competitive and there's not a ton of uh, full-time uh, opportunities. So just really happy to be here and really, uh, I feel really lucky to have this job. Oh, good. Well, we're happy to have you here. And uh, Jack, um, what about you? What brought you to our islands um, with, after work you've done other places and, and what's keeping you here? Yeah, so definitely, I, I think um, Andrew raises a number of good points. Um, um, but additionally, I think I'd probably add to you, I mean, this is a pretty long-standing program. Um, so it's really cool to be contributing to that long-term um, data set that's been going on here since, you know, the 50s. And um, additionally, I mean, there's so much growth that happens here, um, whether that's kind of, you know, the research initiatives that have been uh, expanded um, since, you know, Kelly joined in, but there's, I don't know, I think there's a lot of growth in this organization and it's, it's a fun thing to be a part of, um, both to have that kind of continuation of, of long-term monitoring and then kind of, you know, uh, having greater and greater kind of uh, um, outreaching uh, research initiatives. Yeah, it's, it's, um, seems that having such qualified staff, um, it must really be a benefit, Kelly, to the work that you are doing. It sounds like you're on an extremely ambitious track with the research and the monitoring. And and then when you add the challenges of the 2020 season, um, it you know, must really be a benefit to have these guys who, who really know what they're doing. Absolutely. Um, like a lot of other programs, we were definitely short staffed this year and having a team that's so experienced and good at their jobs is I think probably the only way we could have possibly made it through this season. And so when you say short staffed, you weren't able to um, bring on interns. Right. Uh, So we typically have a number of interns and two seasonal technicians to help out with the field work. And because of limitations associated with COVID, we weren't able to do that this year. Oh, okay. So it could have been four more staff perhaps. Four to six, even sometimes, depending on the year. Yeah. Wow. And then it was what the first six weeks without volunteers or so, Jack? Uh, Yeah, that's that's right. It was a little bit over a month for um, volunteers who lived on Sanibel. Um, They were kind of allowed Mm -hmm. to uh, rejoin the the monitoring efforts first and then off island volunteers uh, a few weeks after that. Um, but yeah, for, wow. for those on-island volunteers, it'd be right around a little bit over a month. Mm. So you guys must have really put in some hours then. Um, so l- let's give people an idea of what goes, what the basics are that go into a nesting season. Uh, can you walk us through what's involved in the monitoring side of it, Jack? Sure. Yeah. So once the season officially kicks off, um, April 15th, we're out on the beach every morning. Um, so we're monitoring both Sanibel 
and Captiva. So that's going to be about 18 miles of beach that we're monitoring. So about 13 on Sanibel and then an additional five up on Captiva. So um, the islands are kind of broken up into sections. So we have different teams doing the monitoring. Um, So it's not one group doing the entire 18 miles, but we are covering all that beach and we're looking for um, new crawls so we can document and um, we're recording all that information and we find a nest, of course, um, you know, we're going to verify that nest, mark it off, um, screen it, protect it. Um, And then, you know, as the season progresses, we're not only looking for new crawls, but we're monitoring all existing nests that we found. And additionally, you know, we're looking for any signs of, um, you know, uh, depredations by predators or eventually get to the point where we're looking for signs of hatching. Uh, And then once that starts happening, you know, we're doing inventories. So we're looking at kind of the hatching success of those nests. So it seems to be as the season progresses, it gets, uh, there's a lot more going on. It's a lot busier for sure. Yeah. So, so you start with the sun coming up and, then you can go as long as until, what, sometimes several hours into the day? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good point. So we're starting kind of right at first light when it's early enough to be on the beach um, at a point where it's light enough that you don't need any artificial light to guide you. Um, so kind of right as dawn's breaking and get that jump start. And um, yeah, depending on what stretch of beach you're on, how busy it is, I mean, you can be starting at you know, say six and you might not be done until, um, you know, sometimes there are a few times this season that, it, you know, uh, we didn't have crews get off the beach until maybe about one thirty two PM. So, um, it can be long days for sure. Um, uh, but, uh, that's kind of something that everybody's it, it's, it's long, hard days, but it's, I think fun. And that's part of what, uh, mm-hmm. staff and volunteers look forward to sometimes or those, uh, super busy days because the days are getting off late or, uh, that means that there's a lot of activity. So it's always fun. Yeah. Exciting. And a lot of beautiful sunrises, I'm sure. Uh, and, and what about the night survey work, Andrew? How, how does that work? Uh, the nights start uh, usually around the first week of May. And um, it's a seven day a week uh, survey. And we usually start around uh 9 p.m. and go to 5 a.m. So it's a it's a pretty good shift once you uh, finish cleaning up all the vehicles and stuff. But um, it's really exciting. We get to interact and uh, observe uh, nesting female sea turtles. So it's it's a it's a lot of fun and really exciting. And we've been doing this for the uh, the last few years, so now we're getting to see a lot more turtles returning that have uh, tags. So, so you started the night survey, the night tagging program in 2018. Uh, In I think our first surveys going out were in uh, 2016, but uh, there had been past reports with uh, the uh, Charles LaBeouf, but long time. Oh, right. Yeah. So. so, and that gives you a, a chance to encounter people on the beach as well and to educate them at night. Yes. Right? Um, in uh, a non, I guess, pandemic year, we uh, distribute um, red light uh, filters and kind of ed- education pamphlets 
to people that are out at night with white flashlights. And we're always happy to answer any sea turtle questions. And we get asked quite a few. I can imagine. Yeah. And what about the research projects, um, which, by the way, we'll have to do another podcast uh, to discuss them in depth. But can you uh, briefly explain what you're investigating, Kelly? Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. Um, but in addition to the nest monitoring efforts that Jack mentioned, we do have an active research program that's helping us learn more about the turtles that are nesting on our beaches. And like Andrew mentioned, we started the nighttime tagging project in 2016, and that's allowing us to identify the individual turtles and learn more about their nesting behavior and population structure. And we're also in the second year of a project looking at the long-term impacts of that really bad 2018 red tide on our nesting loggerheads. Um, a lot of people, I think, probably know that almost 1,300 turtles died in southwest Florida during that bloom, which shows us pretty clearly mm. the acute impacts of brevitoxicosis. But we're really interested in learning more about how that massive bloom affected their health and reproductive success in the long term. Mm -hmm. And we're also um, doing a sex ratio project to characterize how our unique groundwater flow that we see on our beaches might affect the temperature and moisture of nests, and it could potentially also alter hatchling sex ratios. And we also just wrapped up a three-year project using satellite telemetry to see where the green turtles go when they're finished nesting on our beaches. So we were able mm. to follow their migrations and identify their residence areas or home ranges. And we'll actually be publishing that data very soon. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. And, um, so yeah, that we could talk about that for quite a while, but let's, uh, let's do focus for now on this sea turtle season. And, um, you know, it was my first season with SCCF and, I had a big learning curve that was definitely compounded by COVID and the early nesting. And what I learned the most is that there's just so much interest in our sea turtles. I, whenever I would post anything on social media, it was just amazing the response that we get. So um, do you think that we have a community that's especially devoted or is that kind of a universal thing with sea turtles. Uh, Andrew, you want to talk uh, sure. about that? Sure. Um, well, I think sea turtles are, are uh, kind of uh, universally, like people are pretty fond of sea turtles and, and they get a, a lot of good publicity on their own. But I'd, I'd say Sanibel, um, our, our volunteers and, and our community, they really do like deeply care about uh, the sea turtles and the environment on Sanibel. Uh, we have a, a lot of volunteers that have been uh, with the program for years and years and, and some from the very start and they really do care a lot. And uh, we definitely couldn't uh, get through a season without them. We definitely uh, need all the volunteers and they are super valuable to the program and to the turtles as well. And so um, as the volunteer coordinator, Jack, uh, can you talk a little bit more about some of the challenges that you faced this summer? Sure. Yeah. So Andrew kind of mentioned earlier that this, the beginning of this year was a little bit of a nightmare logistically, just trying to figure out how to structure surveys and our efforts um, given the pandemic. Um, and so, I mean, from, from a pretty obvious standpoint, I think just making sure that 
we were doing everything in our best interest to ensure um, the health and safety of everyone involved in the beginning um, was kind of our main concern. And, um, you know, so we were just trying to structure our surveys with that in mind. Uh, and then in the beginning, we were, as Kelly mentioned, kind of short staffed. So not only do we not have our seasonal staff, but uh, initially at the start of the season, we actually couldn't have any volunteer um, efforts. So I think that in itself was a challenge. The volunteers um, contribute thousands of hours every season to our, our program, um, and we really couldn't do it without them. So we were really fortunate to have them eventually come back. And fortunately, it wasn't all that long. But maybe one of the hardest things, too, I think, not just from the logistical standpoint and not having that volunteer efforts um, in the early days, but the fact that, you know, we, we continue to update them, but they kind of had to watch from the sidelines as we have some of this leatherback activity early on. We have a really early nesting season. Um, and I think we all felt a little bit bad that they weren't there to share in that experience with us initially. Um, because mm -hmm. these, I mean, outside of them, kind of providing all these hours and helping us, um, you know, they've been doing this for years and we've kind of developed some close bonds with a lot of them. And so it's just nice to be able to share these experiences with them. Um, and I know that a lot of them were, were bummed out that they weren't on the beaches with us to find, you know, these early nests and these leatherback crawls. And um, so I think it ended up being really fortunate that it only took about a month and all that was still going on, of course. So um, we did get, um, the volunteers back and I think they got to enjoy a lot of the excitement, but initially I think it was tough to, to kind of, uh, to, to experience all that with, without them. No, I'm sure it was, I think they're all emotionally involved, right? Like too. Um, so, and, and you even had to do some of the trainings virtually from the beginning. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, and for some of that stuff, certainly it lends itself to, um, being a lot more um, conducive to in-person training, um, just stuff on the beach, you know, looking at sign, um, showing them things. It's a lot harder to do over, you know, Zoom or virtually um, than it is to actually get out there, boots on the ground and kind of experience it in real time. So I think that was a little bit of a challenge, but, um, you know, fortunately um, we had some, some, um, uh, veteran volunteers that were able to kind of step up and um, you know, when we were allowed to, to uh, have volunteers back and we were allowed to, you know, have multiple people out there socially distanced, they were able to kind of take on some of the role of, of teaching a little bit sometimes too. So that was definitely helpful. Yeah. that Yeah. And the, the timing was such that I think you got in your volunteer steak party where they paint all the steaks, yes, yes. right? The, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm, the, the bright yellow, but then that was, you know, then unexpectedly this pandemic came upon us. That was, uh, yeah, for sure. Got, I think and I mean, the, the, you know, we talk about how busy the season is and, and, uh, it's a different kind of busy postseason, but, um, there's a lot going on preseason too, getting things involved. So to have to do all that right is where the kind of pandemic was breaking and we were learning about all these things that were going to maybe like hamper us in a little bit. I think that, it's itself was a challenge too, just to kind of it added to the to the workload. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, I think that the pandemic also made people very hungry for um, 
news about turtles uh, because I think turtles kind of, you know, gave people respite from the pandemic. And um, we really got some amazing press this summer. And a lot of it came from the loggerhead nest boil that you captured on video, Kelly. Um, can you tell us about that experience? Sure. Yeah, I got really lucky that day. I was just out checking nests on a morning survey like we always do. And I noticed that the sand was bubbling on one of them. And then all the hatchlings just started coming out. So I took a few steps back to make sure I gave them enough space and just watched them all crawl to the water. Um, and I've, I've seen boils before, but never from the very beginning like that. So it was a really special morning. That was, that was amazing video that you got. You actually captured the first turtle that popped up out of the Yeah, sand. it was really exciting. It was. And it was about five minutes, yeah. all told, the video. And, and that, that went, that got millions of, uh, of views and um, led to a story in Travel and Leisure um, that suggested uh, fewer people on the beaches due to COVID led to earlier and more nesting on our beaches. Um, just wondering, you know, um, if from your experience this summer, do you think there actually were fewer people on the beaches than previous seasons, Jack? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, um, certainly um, our beaches were never really formally closed, but there were kind of um, beach parking closures, which limited the number of people on the beach. And uh, there were like stay at home orders issued. So that kind of reduced the number of people out there. And I think just, yeah, if you kind of asked everybody anecdotally, we were seeing less people. Um, but once they kind of started to, to reopen um, the beaches, of course, people were um, coming back pretty quickly and it got pretty busy again. So I think there was a, a small period of time where there wasn't a lot of people on the beach. Um, but I don't, I wouldn't characterize it as like a ghost town or anything. You know, you maybe saw less people than you would in a, in a normal year, but there, there were still people utilizing the beach. definitely. So we can't really say that, um, Kelly, that COVID led to the number of records that were broken this summer in terms of nesting. I don't think we can make that direct connection, but um we did notice that there were fewer false crawls in that time period that Jack mentioned. It was a pretty short period of time that we noticed there weren't as many people on the beach, but our false crawl rate was down about 23% during that time period. So it does seem like maybe the turtles found it easier to pick a good nesting spot when there weren't as many people out there. Oh. It seems quite probable. So, um, so this season, we had some uh, really amazing statistics and broke several records. Um, so let's go through some of those and talk about them. Um, Andrew, can you tell us about the earliest uh, crawl that we saw on our Yes, our earliest season? crawl uh, was April 1st, and it was a leatherback false crawl. Yeah, that was April Fool's Day, right? So were you sure if it when the guy called it in, uh, it was real or not? Yeah, sometimes people draw <laughs> tracks in the sand and you can get a, a false report, but we were definitely really excited when we got out there and we saw how massive the track was. A leatherback, yeah. So is that the first time that we've had a, um, a leatherback crawl, like start a season out, as far as you can remember, Kelly? What was that? Sorry. 
<laughs> couldn't hear you. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I brought up April Fools. Let's let's pick that up one more time, okay? And I won't throw any <laughs> surprise questions. All right. Okay. Let's do it one more time. Okay. So let's go through some of the amazing uh, statistics from the 2020 season and um, the several records that were broken. Uh, Andrew, can you tell us about the earliest uh, crawl that we saw? Yes, our uh, earliest crawl was on April 1st, and it was a leatherback false crawl. So that was pretty phenomenal huh, to see on the island. So yeah, it was, uh, it was really exciting. And I think the, the whole team was super stoked to, to see the giant uh, crawl at their own beach. Wow. And then, uh, Kelly, we also um, had our earliest uh, loggerhead nest. Right. right. We had our first loggerhead nest recorded on April 15th, which was really early for us. And sea turtles are triggered to mate when the water warms up. So the earlier nesting that we saw this year was probably a reflection of the warmer water temperatures this spring. Ah, okay. And then we ended up with a record number of nests on um, loggerhead nests on both Sanibel and Captiva uh, and the most nest ever of all species combined. Uh, can you tell us about that, Jack? Yeah, so on Sanibel, we ended up with 660 loggerhead nests, uh, which was a record. And then Captiva... 266 loggerhead nests, um, which gave us a record combined loggerhead nests of 926. Um, and what was super interesting and exciting um, was that the record for loggerhead nests on Captiva was actually broken on uh, June 27th, which was kind of right as we were getting into the peak of nesting season. So it happened really early, um, which was, uh, yeah, just like a really interesting um, uh, thing that that occurred up there I mean it started off pretty hot there was some um, you know very quickly there was a lot of nesting activity going on up there and it just kind of continued throughout the season and then on Sanibel we kind of saw that steady stream of nests that eventually got us the uh, record at 660 um, and then of course with the leatherback nests yeah. and uh, we had some uh, green activity as well uh, we ended up with 937 uh, total nests um, that's all species. And that was a record as well. Wow. So did you run out of yellow steaks? Uh, no, we came close. We, we thought about <laughs> it. We might have to order more at one point. Um, but luckily it, the nesting slowed to a point where we were inventorying nests and, uh, removing those steaks from the beach as nests were still being laid. So we were able to kind of recycle and, uh, um, we never actually ran out, but, but yeah, there was a point where we thought, we might have to buy more. Right. Wow. So exciting. And then, of course, that means a lot more um, work for you guys, too, and for the volunteers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that records always translate to, to longer, uh, longer days out there in the sun and the heat. So um, there's a lot of work, but this is always good when it comes to sea turtles, uh, as Andrew likes to say. So, um <laughs> I think uh, I think everyone was pretty happy to uh, to be out on the beach that long. Um, better than staying in your in your house for for seven hours. So. Um, yeah. Right, or being stuck in front of a computer yeah, screen. Definitely. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so we had some other amazing highlights as well this season. Um, for the first time ever, uh, some satellite transmitters were. 
placed on loggerheads from Sam yeah, Bell. Yeah, so we right, put three Andrew? transmitters on uh, three different loggerheads and were able to track uh, two of them for, for quite some time and, and watch them swim down, uh, one down to the Florida Keys and another one down to the uh, Caribbean, almost to Cuba. And one uh, that we put the tag on, mm -hmm. unfortunately, the transmitter stopped uh, working after about a month. So we only got to follow her kind of around Sanibel. So is that where you thought the loggerheads go? I mean, the, this is where they go to, to what? Uh, it's where they forage? Uh, yeah, they went pathways. to similar places um, that other programs have tracked turtles to, but uh, it's always interesting to see where the turtles that are nesting on Sanibel are coming from. Mm-hmm. So um, are those transmitters uh, Yeah, two still of the transmitters are still uh, actively pinging, which is... Um, Really cool and fun to watch every day. Oh. Yeah. yeah, very cool. Okay, and um, and so what about the leatherback nests that we had this um this summer and and uh the leatherback that you all named? Can you tell us about that, sure. Kelly? And, yeah, we we um, ended up naming her Juniper, and she was definitely one of the major highlights of the season because it's so rare for leatherbacks to nest on the west coast of Florida. And to have six nests was really exceptional. Um, and after we found those first few crawls, we were connected with Florida Leatherbacks, which is a group on the east coast of Florida. And they were really excited to try and get out here and get a satellite tag on this nesting female. And I think people may not realize how hard it is to find an individual sea turtle on a really long beach. Um, but we were really motivated to get that tag on her. Mm. So on the nights that we expected her to come back, we divided the beach up into short stretches. And we had lots of teams out there looking for her. And we were unsuccessful during their first visit, but we were all really eager to try again. And I think it was our fourth or fifth night out there. And Chris and Kelly finally found her. Um, so it was a really, really exciting night. And it's been super interesting to track the first leatherback ever from the Gulf Coast of Florida. Yeah, and, and is that tracker still um, the, on, Juniper? I'm not sure if the tracker's still on or not, but it did stop pinging a little while ago. Oh, but but that was after she'd already gotten up the East right. Coast, I think she's, pretty much, I right? think she was up in like South Carolina. Carolinas. Yeah. Wow, that is so exciting. And, um, and then the juniper also had some eggs that hatched, right? I mean, there were right. some hatchlings yeah, that were produced. That she laid, which was on Captiva, did produce some some hatchlings. And unfortunately, the rest of the nests didn't, um, which is not unusual for leatherbacks. They do tend to have a pretty low hatch success. Uh, that's pretty unusual for some hatchlings to come out of the gulf coast yeah isn't it there's so, you know a handful of recorded nests on the gulf coast but it is still really rare well that's so exciting too and um speaking of hatchlings uh a uh, national geographic story just a couple weeks ago um, suggested that we might see a baby boom from this summer's extraordinary number of nests and that lower false crawl rate at the beginning of the of the summer, um, but how does that relate to the drop in the 
number of total emerged hatchlings, Jack? Um, yeah, so I guess if, I mean, uh, not necessarily that, that we had a lot of records broken. Um, I mean, as we saw with our final numbers, but that didn't directly translate to a record number of hatchlings. Um, that's largely due to um, across all of our beaches, east, west, and up on Captiva, we kind of experienced lower average hatch successes than we have in past seasons. And so that's kind of the hatch success is a direct, um, um, it categorizes the output, you know, so how many hatchlings um, mm -hmm. are being produced and then how many are making it out. So that's kind of um, the best metric for determining kind of the, the success of, of the nesting activity on your beach. Um, now, I mean, trying to break down why maybe we had all these nests and we didn't produce that many hatchings is a lot more complicated than it may seem. Um, there's a number of different uh, factors at play um, that influence hatch success. And so, um, I mean, that's kind of one thing Kelly mentioned, the research we were looking at um, relating to the groundwater and how that might influence some of these um, biotic and abiotic factors and how that kind of influences hatch success. Um, so it can be due to a number of things, temperature, moisture, salinity, um, elevation, um, just, just to name a few, but um, that's something with it. We're definitely kind of, um, you know, wanting to learn more about and to give a, a real hard answer on, on why we saw that this year. Um, you know, I can't really do that. I, we, we're not, uh, really sure at this point, but it's something kind of we're interested in learning more about. So, um, do you think uh, Kelly or or Jack or or even you, Andrew? Um, do you think that the red tide of twenty eighteen could have um, triggered more nesting among the turtles? What I think that they are on a nesting cycle that's typically two to four years. Um, so the turtles that were supposed to be nesting this year were probably, you know, physiologically bound to nest this year already. Um, but it is interesting to think about mm -hmm. the nesting trends and why we're seeing more turtles and things like that. And what about, um, you know, with 33,800 hatchlings roughly this year compared to 48,000 last year, which was record-breaking. Um, and the research you're doing to investigate whether or not the, the mama turtle passes on brevitoxin to the hatchling, do you think that might have influenced the hatch success There is rate? Um, some limited research that shows that heavier concentrations of toxins in the eggs can uh, result in lower hatch success. So it is a possibility, but until we know what our concentrations are in our eggs, we won't really have an answer to that. But that is one of the right, research studies correct. you're doing, correct? So, um, yeah, so that, that sounds like really meaningful research. Um, so uh, let's see, what other threats um, do you think sky glow that can influence um, whether or not the hatchlings make it to sea, right? Do you, do you uh, have definitely. concerns about uh, that, Andrew? Sanibel itself is is really good, um, and the city as well of enforcing uh, lighting ordinances and doing light surveys and things of that nature. But um, you get some ambient sky glow from surrounding communities and cities, and even uh, 
when Sanibel is, is pretty dark and, and on, a, on a moonless night, you're getting a lot of glow coming from uh, the north and the east and will kind of pull turtles uh, that direction instead of towards the ocean. So that definitely uh, plays a, a factor and it, it causes hatchlings to use up energy and uh, be exposed potentially to more predators. So it is definitely a problem. Hmm. Yeah. So um, then there's other threats uh, have to do with um, the coyote presence on the islands. Um, how, how does the program handle the threat of coyote depredation, Jack? Uh, yeah. So the coyotes are definitely an interesting topic. Um, that's probably another thing you could talk about for a long time. But um, yeah, basically, um, they kind of found their way on the Sanibel around 2011. Um and then in, in 20, um, uh, a few years after that, right around 2013, I believe, the, the depredation rate started to really pick up. The coyotes started digging into uh, the nest more and more. So one of the mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, mitigation strategies that uh, was enacted in 2015, we really started to um, screen as many nests as we could. So, so when we're out there in the morning monitoring, we're trying to verify the mm-hmm. egg chamber. So we're actually locating where those eggs are so that we can um, appropriately fra- place a uh, metal screen over top of the nest. Um, and this screen, it, when it's centered over the eggs, uh, prevents the, does a really good job of preventing the coyote from digging straight down. Um, and it's also wide enough that it's pretty effective at preventing them from digging in from the side and getting the eggs mm-hmm. that way. Uh, and an important thing to mention, the question we get a lot too, is that the, the screen has a mesh such that, uh, it prevents, you know, the predators from getting down through one individual, um, opening, but it's big enough for the hatchlings to actually emerge on their own. So that's what they call self-releasing. So it doesn't inhibit the hatchlings emerging in any way. Um, it's strictly there to prevent depredation. Uh, and what we've seen once we started doing that is that it's been, really effective. Um, the federal loggerhead recovery plan, you know, aims at keeping that depredation percent percentage um, at or below 10%. And we've been well below 10% um, for the past several seasons. Um, and we saw that since with that decline in depredation has started since we um, verify and screen this. I mean, that that's more work to do that, but it's, but it's worth it because it, because it is very effective. So you don't think that coyote depredation had to do with the lower um, number of hatchlings or su- hatch um, success? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Um, the hatch success is is really just a metric to determine the the number of eggs in the clutch that hatches. Um, and so mm-hmm. um, I don't know that we saw this year oh. wasn't necessarily a um, high depredation year compared to years past where. Um, coyotes were um, damaging a lot of the eggs. Um, we were right around, I think, 4% of um, our nests were depredated by coyotes, which is pretty comparable to last year. So I don't know that we can directly say that mm-hmm. you know coyotes had a big hand in um, that lower uh, hatching output. No, it sounds like you've gotten that under control. And uh, I'll put a link in the description um, to this podcast so that 
you can watch the nest boil video that Kelly shot and see how the hatchlings are able to come up through this this screen um, quite easily. Uh, is that is that screening something that's used in many places, or um, did you guys kind of invent that here? Um, I wouldn't. It's we definitely didn't invent it here. Um, the, those screens are used in um, other organizations as well. We utilized. Um, they weren't metal, but they were plastic. But it was the same idea. Um, we use screens like that in where I worked in Georgia, and I know that they do that in other programs as well. Um, but in the state of Florida, um, you know, you know, we have a permit that we're allowed to, um, you know, we're authorized to to verify the egg chamber to place a screen. That's not something that happens on every nesting beach in Florida, um, but it's certainly not um, solely something that's only done here. Well, it sounds like you're having success with it here. So that's that's what's important, right? Um, and then uh, what about um, in terms of this, this season, uh, we've talked about how our community is so supportive. Um, and, and we always talk about the things that people can do to help, you know, share the beach with sea turtles. Did, did you find, Kelly, that people were pretty good this summer about um, removing beach furniture and um, and that type I think of thing. We have some challenges with that every year, and it's people aren't trying to do anything wrong. Sometimes they just don't realize that leaving their beach on their furniture on the beach at night can harm turtles, or leaving a hole on the beach might be something that can trap them. Um, I think we had a pretty average season in that sense, and we always work to to continue our outreach and get the word out to the condos and do the best we can to reach everybody that's using the beach. Well, and it's great that uh, you have such great relationships with um, so many of the resorts and um, businesses on the islands. And so do, do you guys have any other thoughts about the 2020 season as we wrap up the podcast? Um, well, I know this has already kind of been said, but I always like to give a shout out to our volunteers. We are just really fortunate to have such a passionate and, and enthusiastic team and we couldn't do it without them. So I like to, to say thanks whenever I can. Well, that, that that's hundred right. or so people really make a difference. Right. Yes, and and I think you have a wait list, don't you, for more volunteers? Uh, yeah, that's correct. We kind of have a uh, uh, what they call a good problem to have in a sense where we have so much interest uh, <laughs> to help out with the program to volunteer uh, that uh, it's more people than we can, um, you know, actively uh, get out there on the beach. So um, yeah, at this point, we do uh, have a wait list for people that are interested. Um, so yeah, and there's there's quite a bit of interest, which is which is never a bad thing. That's for sure. That No, that's a great thing. And, and so if you're listening and you're interested, you can go to our website at sccf.org and um, look under our work, Sea Turtles, and learn more about the program. And there's a form you can fill out to join that wait list. Anything else you'd like to mention before we sign I think that's off? That's it for me. Great. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time to talk through such an extraordinary sea turtle season and to help us understand the need to protect and care for these amazing and dearly loved animals. Uh, thank so you. Thanks, Andrew. And Kelly, thank you so much for your leadership and your um, initiative you, and all these research projects. Mm -hmm.
Okay, so thanks for listening to Land, Water, Wildlife, SCCF's podcast, Connecting You to Nature.